In connection with our sermon this morning on Lord's Day 17, we read the sacred scriptures in Mark 16. Mark chapter 16 is Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ or of the events that occurred immediately after his resurrection. And it's a nice summary of some of those events, although it's not exhaustive. You have to look at Matthew, Luke, and John, as well as the epistles, to receive the full picture, and we will look at some of those as well. But we read Mark 16. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. 
Let's consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning in Lord's Day 17. We are currently considering the teaching of the Catechism on the articles of our Apostles' Creed. And we are currently looking at the states of Jesus Christ, his state of humiliation, and his state of exaltation. This morning we begin to look at his state of exaltation, having already looked at his suffering, death, crucifixion, and descent into hell. Lord's Day 17. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, we believe the testimony of the angels that they spoke to the women that Sunday morning when they said, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is not here, for he is risen from the dead, as he said. Now go and tell his disciples. Throughout history, there have been many attempts to refute the great historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Those who try to refute the resurrection of Jesus do not want to believe it. They might present it as if they cannot believe it, but the reality is they do not want to believe it. And that is the case because if Jesus actually, truly rose from the dead, that would then mean that Jesus is who he said he was. Namely, the only begotten Son of God who came into this world, sent from God into the world to save his people from their sins. And if Jesus actually rose from the dead, as the Bible says, then we must believe in him. We must follow him. And if we do not, we will perish, as Jesus said in the chapter that we read. They do not want to believe in Jesus. They do not want to follow Jesus. They want to believe in themselves. And they want to follow their own desires. And they want to live however they please. And therefore they realize the great importance of refuting the resurrection of Jesus. They have to do away with it. They have to somehow refute it. And so they attack it, and they call it a myth and a legend or a hoax, but something that never actually happened. By the time of the Reformation of the Church in the 16th century, there was, however, a general consensus in Christian lands that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Nobody really questioned it very much, and nobody really doubted it very much, And that's probably why our Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 1500s, doesn't really go into much depth on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Look at the Lord's Day. We have here no explanation of the meaning and the fact and the proofs of the resurrection. It just goes right to the profit of it for us. However, after the, after the Reformation, in the past 500 years, an event took place which many people call the Enlightenment. It really wasn't an Enlightenment at all, but it was a darkening of the Western world. But through this so-called Enlightenment, this general consensus about the resurrection collapsed, and in its place was a general feeling of doubt and even denial that Jesus ever actually rose from the dead. The Catechism teaches us that those who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead will not profit from the resurrection of Jesus. And that's based on the teaching of Scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, verse 9, If thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And the implication is, if you don't believe it, you won't be saved. The Apostle describes the contents of the precious gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. The gospel, he says, that I received, and now I gave to you, is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That was the gospel Paul had received and which he preached. And that is the gospel which I preach today. So I call your attention this morning to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, the fact of his resurrection. Secondly, the prophet for us in the present. And then the pledge to us for the future. Before we plunge into the prophet of the resurrection, as the Catechism does, We would do well because of the day and age in which we live in, but even in any day and age, to consider, first of all, the great historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And that must be preached for our edification this morning. How can we know and how do we know that Jesus truly arose from the dead? After all, none of us has ever seen a man rise from the dead. None of us has ever seen a man who died and was buried, then dig his way out of his grave or be removed from his grave and come back to life. We've never seen that. And doesn't nature and common sense teach us that people who die remain dead? Isn't that a universal and absolute truth? No, it's not because Jesus arose from the dead. And we know that because God himself reveals it to us in the Holy Scriptures, which he has given infallibly and inerrantly through holy men who have written down these Scriptures. And in the Scriptures, God reveals that to us, not simply by stating it, although that's there in many different places, but God also reveals it to us by giving us many lines of argumentation and proof, and these are infallible, irrefutable proofs. Even though men have tried very hard to refute them, they cannot, and they fail repeatedly. What are those lines of infallible proof and argumentation that God gives us in the Scriptures? First of all, according to all four Gospel accounts, 
On that Sunday morning, that first day of the week after Jesus died, a group of women left the city of Jerusalem and went out to the sepulcher where Jesus was buried in order to bring spices and to anoint his dead body as an act of final love for their Lord. Those women were Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast seven devils, Mary, the mother of James, one of Jesus' disciples, a woman named Salome, and a woman named Joanna, who was the wife of Chusa, who was the steward of King Herod. And these women, and possibly other women as well, were women who had followed Jesus with the disciples during his ministry and who had ministered to him and cared for his earthly needs. All four gospel accounts tell us that these women that morning went out to the sepulcher to anoint the body of Jesus, but what they found was not what they expected. They were talking to each other and saying, who is going to roll away the stone from the sepulcher? But when they arrived, the stone was already rolled away. And when they went into the sepulcher and looked around, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. But all that they found was his grave clothes. All four gospel accounts also tell us that these women encountered an angel or angels or a man or men clothed in bright shining garments. And that this angel and these two angels said to the women, you are seeking Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is not here because he is risen. Even as he said, even as he prophesied, come and see the place where the Lord lay. He doesn't lay there anymore. He is not here. The tomb is empty. The fourth gospel tells us in the second place that not only did a group of women go, but also Peter and John ran to the sepulcher that Sunday morning, being told by Mary Magdalene of what had happened. Peter and John, and John was the one who wrote this fourth gospel, so he is telling us what he did and what he saw. They ran to the sepulcher. And John ran faster than Peter and arrived first. But then Peter caught up and he ran right into the sepulcher. And what did they see? They did not see the body of Jesus there. But they saw the grave clothes of Jesus lying where he was laid. But Jesus not in the grave clothes anymore. And yet they were lying there in a peculiar way, as if Jesus was still in them, but he wasn't. In a neat pile, as if the body of Jesus had simply vanished out of those grave clothes. And that, by the way, already points us to the profound truth and meaning of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not arise from the dead back into this life and back into this world as Lazarus did. But Jesus in his resurrection passed through death and passed above death into a higher form of human life, immortality and eternal life. And he received a heavenly body in which he was able to pass right through his grave clothes and walk right through the walls of the tomb so that the stone was not rolled away by the angel to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that we might see the evidence 
of his resurrection. In the third place, we are told in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, that the leaders of the Jews who hated and crucified Jesus also had to admit that the tomb was empty. The leaders of the Jews did not try to maintain that Jesus was still in the tomb because he wasn't, and they knew that. So they had to try to come up with a story, a cover story, to try to convince people that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so they made up the story and they told the soldiers to disseminate the story that the disciples had come in the night and stolen the body of Jesus. And Matthew says, This is the story that is still spread around among the Jews to this day. And we might add, it's one of the stories that is still spread to this day in the 21st century. But is it not absurd on the very face of it? And is it not evident on the very face of it that this is a cover story and that it does not explain the facts that are known and well-established? Is it not absurd, after all, to maintain that this little band of Galileans, former fishermen, many of them, simple men, weak men who were grieving over the death of their master on the cross, now somehow gathered up the strength and the courage to form a great conspiracy and to spread the hoax, and that they had the strength and the power to overwhelm a quaternion of Roman soldiers who were stationed at the grave of Jesus, to overwhelm those soldiers somehow, although they were never trained in the arts of war and fighting, and then to roll away the stone and to steal the body of Jesus, and to pretend and to tell people that he arose from the dead, knowing in their own minds that he wasn't risen, but that it was all a hoax. And then to go forth the rest of their lives, preaching that he arose, suffering persecution, imprisonment, beatings, stonings, and ultimately martyrdom for a hoax? It doesn't make any sense. It's a cover story. It's a lie. Trying to cover the truth that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Another lie that has been spread is that this was actually a delusion of the disciples that after Jesus' death, several days or weeks or months later, they began to have dreams and visions. Whether inside their minds or outside of their minds, they started to see visions of Jesus. And they began to think that this was actual reality, that Jesus actually arose from the dead. But isn't that also an absurdity on the very face of it? Because people who see dreams and visions know that it's a dream and a vision. And besides, we still have to reckon with the fact that the body was not in the tomb. And the body of Jesus, throughout all the ages of history, has never been found, has never been accounted for, except in the scriptures, which tell us that he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact well attested by the scriptures and by the witnesses who saw him. And that's, in a way, another line of argumentation that God infallibly gives to us in the scriptures 
Another infallible and irrefutable proof is that many people saw Jesus after his resurrection. All four of the gospel accounts, in addition to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, tell us that people, many people, not just one or two people, but many, many people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Mary Magdalene was the first. Mary Magdalene had been part of that group of women that had gone to the tomb early that morning, but Mary had turned around and run back to the city to tell Peter and John. And then as those two ran to the sepulcher, she followed them. and She came back. And after the other women returned from the sepulcher, Mary was lingering there, weeping in the garden. And suddenly she saw a man, and she did not know who he was. And she thought he was perhaps the gardener, and that maybe he was the one responsible for taking away the body of Jesus. And she said, Sir, please, if you have taken away his body, please show me where his body is. And Mary turned around and began to walk away. And the man said to her, Mary. And when she heard that voice, she turned around and looked at him again and realized it was Jesus. And she said, Rabboni. And Jesus said, Do not touch me yet. I'm not yet ascended to my Father, but go and tell my disciples that I'm risen indeed. That's not all. Mary wasn't the only one who saw Jesus. She ran and told the disciples and the others who were gathered still weeping over his death. And two of those people, not part of the eleven disciples, but other disciples, two of them began to travel down the road to Emmaus for whatever purpose. Mark mentions that, and Luke gives us the fuller account. And those two men were discussing with each other all the things that had just happened and how Jesus, whom they thought was the Messiah, had died on the cross. And how can this be? And suddenly a man walked up beside them. And he walked with them the rest of the way to Emmaus. And he told them from the scriptures all the things that were prophesied that the Messiah must come, he must suffer and die, and in that way enter into his glory. And he opened and expounded all of the scriptures which spoke of Christ to them. And when they came finally to Emmaus, and he sat down and ate and broke bread with them, as they saw him breaking the bread, they suddenly recognized him. And instantly he vanished out of their sight. And they looked at each other and said, Did not our hearts burn within us as we heard him preaching to us on the road? And they hurried immediately back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, We have seen Jesus. He's risen indeed, as the women said. The disciples did not believe those two travelers. And as they were gathered together, ten of them with the two travelers, they were arguing amongst themselves in an upper room, the doors locked and closed And suddenly a man appeared in their midst, not having come through the doors or the windows, but suddenly was there and said, Peace be unto you. And 
And Jesus sat down with the ten, speaking with them, fellowshipping with them, eating bits of fish and honey with them. And that, by the way, shows us another proof of his, or another truth of his resurrection, that although he arose in a higher, glorious body, nevertheless it was still his body, and it was still a human body, and they could still recognize him and see the prints in his hands and his feet from the nails of the cross. And he's there eating fish and honey with them. A real human body, but exalted and glorious. But Thomas was not there. And when the disciples said to Thomas, We've seen the Lord. He's risen indeed. It's true. It's true. Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I see the holes in his hands and his feet. So eight days later, the eleven gathered together in that same room in Jerusalem with Thomas, and Jesus appeared again. And they all saw him. And Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, Look at the holes in my hands and my feet. And don't be faithless anymore, but believe, believe. And if those appearances are not enough, about three years later, after Jesus reportedly appeared to many, many other people, including Hundreds of people at one time, about three years later, he appeared to one more person. A man whom he had specially chosen to be a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. A man who was a Pharisee by his education, who had persecuted the church. Suddenly on the road to Damascus, this man going to persecute the people of God in Damascus, beheld a bright blazing light and the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And Saul said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And he was baptized and he believed because he saw with his own eyes, that Jesus is risen indeed. That was the Apostle Paul. And all of these men who saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes spent the rest of their lives teaching, writing, preaching with boldness, with confidence, not as people who are propagating some hoax, but as people who truly believed because they had seen with their own eyes, Jesus lives. He is risen from the dead, as he said. In fact, most of those men, if not all of them, gave their lives suffering on crosses, suffering their heads to be cut off, rotting in prisons, being stoned and shipwrecked. Why would they be willing to suffer so much? Because they knew Jesus lives. He lives. He's risen indeed. And yet throughout history, many have stubbornly denied 
the resurrection. Others struggle with doubt and skepticism about it. But Jesus says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. So what is the blessedness of those who have not seen and yet have believed? What is the profit, the Catechism asks us, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the Catechism teaches us three important aspects of the benefit and the blessedness of those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And the first two are benefits that come to us as believers now in this present time. And the last one, the third one, is a future benefit. In the first place, the benefit and the blessedness that comes to those who believe in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and who rose from the dead the third day is this, that they are partakers of his righteousness. They partake of the righteousness that he purchased for them on the cross. The profit of the resurrection is that Jesus lives. And because he lives, because he is alive, he is able, he has the power and the right and the ability to bestow upon believers the righteousness he purchased on the cross. That's the first benefit. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he died and remained dead, if it is all a myth or a legend or a hoax, then all of my preaching from this pulpit is vain. And you might as well not listen to it. It's all vain. And all of your faith is vain. And all of your hope is vain. You are still in your sins. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are wasting our lives by believing and trusting in him and following him. It's all a waste. It's all vanity and futility. We are all going to die and perish. The apostle writes that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if in this life we only have hope in Jesus who didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. We are fools. But the apostle says, Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For as by man came death, so also by man came the resurrection of the dead. As by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so by one man righteousness entered into the world and resurrection life through that righteousness. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ purchased righteousness for us. We don't have righteousness. We need it. He purchased it for us. On the cross, he satisfied God's justice for us. He finished the work. He accomplished the work fully and completely. And that's why he rose from the dead. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 in his great sermon on Pentecost that it was not possible for death to hold on to him. It wasn't possible 
Because Jesus fully accomplished the penalty of death. He fully purchased righteousness. That's why God raised him up from the dead. The scriptures say in many places that God raised him from the dead. It also says that Jesus arose from the dead by his own power. Because Jesus is God. But God raised him from the dead. Why did God raise him from the dead? Because God needed to declare to the whole world that Jesus has purchased righteousness by his death on the cross. Jesus has satisfied my justice on the cross. Jesus has finished and accomplished salvation on the cross. Therefore, God says, I raise him up. The resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration to the whole world. Jesus is Lord and Christ and Savior, and there is none else. And so the blessedness for believers is that he makes us partakers of his righteousness. We need that righteousness because we are sinners. We still sin every single day. We have besetting sins. We have sinful patterns and habits in our lives. Sinful and habitual ways of thinking. Sinful, habitually sinful ways of speaking to each other. Sinfully habitual ways of behaving in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace. We have sinful habits in the way that we seek to be happy in this life when we are sad, the things that we go to, the pleasures that we seek, the treasures that we seek to try to get a high, to try to get a thrill, to try to get happiness in the struggles and trials of life. We're so sinful that we have these sinful habits. And because of those sinful infirmities of the flesh, We have a constant need to know that we are partakers of the righteousness of Christ. We have a constant need to come to God's house and to hear the declaration, He's risen! He's risen! He's risen! Although your conscience accuses you that you are a sinner, and you are, He is risen, and therefore God declares you are righteous. In Jesus Christ. You come to church this morning feeling the burden of your sins, being convicted and pricked in your soul of the sinful things that you do daily, weekly, constantly. God declares to you, you are righteous. Go to the tomb. Go with the women. Run with Peter and John. See that the stone is rolled away. Peer into the sepulcher. Look in there. What do you see? What do you see? You don't see anything, do you? He's not there. He's risen, as he said. And he's risen because he purchased righteousness for you on the cross. God raised him up. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him you are righteous. But in the second place, the blessedness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ For us who have never seen him, 
and yet who believe is that we have new life. The blessedness in the prophet is not only justification, but sanctification, regeneration, and sanctification. Just as we saw last Sunday in connection with the death of Christ, the benefit of that is that our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with Christ on the cross. That's the benefit that comes to us through the cross. But there's a benefit that comes to us through the resurrection. And that benefit is this. Christ gives you new life. He regenerates you. And he sanctifies you and makes you alive and causes you to live in that life more and more. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if that's just a myth or a legend concocted by the disciples, if that's just a lie and a hoax that has been spread down through the ages, then we're still dead. Dead in our sins and our trespasses, and there's no escape, but we are on our way to eternal death. But Christ has risen from the dead and obtained new life for his people. The blessedness of the resurrection is that because he lives, we live in him. Because he arose, we have risen with him. What do you think is the meaning of the apostle when he makes these glorious statements I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What does the apostle mean when he says, You who were dead in trespasses and sins, he hath quickened together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Quickened together with Christ. What does the Apostle Peter mean when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What do the Apostles mean? They mean that the benefit of the resurrection of Christ is that we live People of God, do you realize that you've already been raised from the dead? And you say to me, no, I haven't died yet. How could I be raised from the dead already? I'll be raised from the dead on the last day, on the day of the resurrection. No, but you've already been raised from the dead. You were born dead. You were born into this world dead, but you've been raised Because the resurrection begins in the heart and the soul, in the spiritual nature of man. And it's in our spiritual heart that we have already been raised from the dead with Christ. That's regeneration. That's the new life that he has the power to give us. And the new life in which he calls us to live more and more. What a benefit and what a joy that we've been given a new life. A new life. 
We don't have to serve the devil. We don't have to serve the flesh. We don't have to serve mammon and the gods of this world. We've been given a new life. We've been given the privilege, the ability to live for God, to live with God, to be devoted to God in a life of worship and prayer and singing of praises to God, a life of service to others. We've been given the marvelous privilege of being able to serve others and not just ourselves. Christ has implanted into us the beautiful new life in which we are now able to do good to others, to visit the widows and the fatherless in their afflictions, to show hospitality to strangers, to witness to the lost about the hope that is in us. If you don't believe it, then go to the tomb again and follow the women there, follow the disciples there, run after Peter and John and peek your head into that tomb. And what do you see? Do you see yourself still in there? The tomb is empty. You're not there anymore. I'm not there anymore. We've been risen with Christ. We've been given a new life. That new life is only a beginning in this life. It's only a beginning. It's only a principle. It's only a seed. It's a new life, but it's only just the start. It will flourish in all its fullness in the world to come. And that's why as long as we live in this world, the word of God comes to us and says, I beseech you, therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then finally, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that there is a future benefit for those who believe, although we have never seen the risen Jesus. The future benefit is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sure pledge of our blessed resurrection on the day of Jesus Christ. If Jesus rose again, and he did, a most wonderful and glorious and astonishing renewal of the whole creation has burst into this world already. If Jesus rose from the dead, the whole creation, the heavens above, the earth beneath, the mountains and the valleys, the forests and the fields, the birds and the fish, the flowers of the field, the stars of the heaven, the whole creation has already begun to be renewed. By our first father, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin and curse and corruption and decay and the whole world came under the curse of vanity and corruption. But when the Son of God entered into this world, 
died on the cross and rose from the dead, a glorious renewal of the whole creation began. The dawn of eternity was the resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week. But we are not to understand that wrongly. The glorious renewal and resurrection of the whole creation is not something that God is pleased to bring about little by little, more and more, so that there will be, as it were, a continual progress in the present age until gradually, little by little, all of the evils of the world vanish away. And more and more, the creation becomes a better and better and more glorious and more wonderful place as many people like to believe and teach. As if the resurrection of Christ was the beginning in this present age already of something that will happen in this present age. As if there will be no convulsions and earthquakes and famines and pestilences and volcanoes and diseases. As if there will be no rise of an antichrist and persecution and final judgment. There will. There will. The creation must still pass through the final convulsions and travail until at last a divine fire destroys and consumes all things and melts them with fervent divine heat. Only then will this glorious renewal be complete in a new heavens and a new earth. And that mirrors our own lives. The resurrection has begun in our hearts. But it's not such that we are going to gradually, more and more, little by little, grow stronger and stronger as we grow older and older, so that our bodies will eventually merge right into immortality. No. We will pass through the weakening of our bodies, through old age, sickness, trials, troubles, loss, grief, and finally, death, and the grave. But we do not face death and the grave as those who have no hope. We face our own personal death in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because his resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. As he passed through death into life, he promises us, you will pass through death into life, into the glorious heavenly life of immortality in body and soul. These bodies must enter into the stage of dissolution, of decay, of decomposition. But we will arise from the dust on the great day of God Almighty, on the great day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the heavens with his angels, to finalize what he began at his death and resurrection, to finalize the full and complete renewal of the whole universe. And when he comes from heaven with the great sound of the trumpet, he will call forth our bodies from the grave, from the dust. 
gathering together the elements of our bodies, exalting them, gathering them together, glorifying us with the same kind of body that he now has. So that we will, for all eternity, run and not become weary. So that we will, for all eternity, feel the power of immortality raging through our new and heavenly bodies so that for all eternity we will experience the purity of a soul that has been cleansed and justified and sanctified in perfection. And so that for all eternity we will eat the fruit of the tree of life and drink freely the river of the water of life that streams through the new paradise, which is the real paradise, the everlasting paradise. There we will stand with men and angels before the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sea, where there will be no more separation, no more division, no more wars and rumors of wars, no more sorrows and schisms, but where there will be perfect peace and unity and harmony where the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the lion with the baby goat for all eternity where all God's people will be gathered together in our perfected, resurrected bodies and souls to dwell with God in his covenant forever. That's our blessed hope. And that is the blessed pledge that Christ gives to us through his resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul was able to write to the Thessalonians only about 20 years after Jesus arose from the dead, only 20 years after, which, by the way, is not nearly enough time to develop a myth or a legend, only 20 years after Jesus arose, Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians, Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Believe that Jesus died and rose for you. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we give thee thanks for the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for our salvation. We thank thee, O God, for giving to us such a marvelous and blessed hope as we live here still in the midst of sin and death that we will pass through this world of sin and death even through the grave and we will rise again on the great and glorious day when the Lord comes. And so with our hearts we cry out, Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And in his name we pray, amen.